1: There's no better way to learn than from your clients. To me, the... Probably the most impactful part of every day is sitting down with our clients and learning about their industry, what their challenges are, and using that to help drive some innovative solutions for them.
0: Sticking with one firm for the majority of your career means you gather a wealth of knowledge from a wide range of clients over a long period of time. It also positions you to be ready for anything.
1: There's a lot to be prepared for, and I think uh, the, the lesson from all of that is be nimble, stay ahead of the market. Be aware of all the different sources that are available to you. And don't wait until there's a fire to then try to go get the insurance.
0: Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Mitigating risk has never been more challenging, but today's guest leans on data, technology, and great relationships with his clients, and over 20 years of working with his highly successful firm. We're excited to sit down today with Amal Darkalkar, who is Managing Partner and Chairman of the Board of Chatham Financial. He is the global head of Chatham's corporate sector and brings over 20 years of experience in derivatives, capital markets expertise to the treasury and accounting functions that support client strategies and operations. Amal created the corporate sector at Chatham in 2010. He's advised some of the largest corporations in the world in the development, execution, and ongoing management of hedging programs across interest rates, currency, and commodities. He has also advised both public and private companies across all industries, including real estate, private equity, telecom, technology, industrials, and healthcare, just to name a few. Amal graduated from Penn State University with a bachelor's degree in both chemical engineering and economics, and received his MBA from Wharton, where he was the Palmer Scholar. Let's enter the arena with Amal Darkokar.
1: Chatham is, we're a bit of a unique company. We work in the capital market space and we exist to really empower our clients to get the best possible capital markets outcomes with a particular focus on debt capital markets and derivative capital markets. We've been around for over 30 years and if you... Can believe it, Tom. Uh, this is my first job out of college. So I started as an intern. I think at one point my job was to walk across the street and get pizzas for everybody on Friday. Um, and this is so, out of undergrad. Yeah, out of undergrad. Wow. So unique. Maybe the story that uh, our grandparents told us uh, about their careers has has been my story. But you know, this is a special company that really you know we've existed for a long time, putting our clients' interests first, and we do really interesting work in capital markets, and we've grown tremendously from when I started and we were, you know, you could feed the whole company with a few pizzas uh, to, uh, that's not quite the case today, Uh, with seven offices, uh, over 3,000 clients, over, you know, a trillion uh, in hedge notional that we advise on every single year. You're going in and you're doing very important work, managing risk,
0: and you're doing it at scale. Around the world with some of the biggest companies in the world, which is super impressive. Before we kind of formally started the interview, we talked a little bit about a culture of excellence and to go from where you were just out of undergrad to where you are today, you couldn't get there without a culture of excellence. Talk about the senior team and how you permeate that through the organization every day.
1: The senior team is a really special group of folks, Tom. We have uh, folks that have been at the company, myself, our CEO, our president, have all been at the company north of you know, 15, 18 years. Uh, and so there's a lot of history there. But then we add in some of the other folks that we've uh, added to the team over the years, uh, including recently hiring a new CTO and chief product officer who uh, was formerly at Reuters as their CTO, You know, hiring a new chief people officer, uh, bringing in talent. And what we really try to blend is, you know, bringing in uh, folks who are aligned with where we want to go, that really put clients at the heart of their story and that put their interests first. And we want to show that you don't have to be here, you know, 20, 30 years in order to live that culture, that there are plenty of people in the world like that. And you know, one of the things that's been really uh, fun for me is uh, realizing that uh, we're the kind of place that a lot of people want to work. As we've grown and expanded, it used to be when I started that it was a little bit harder to recruit. Uh, you have now to sell it's, um, sell
0: people, right? And then all yeah. of a sudden, now they're now they're coming to you.
1: Yeah, we we get to have some of those creative conversations. And say, oh, we don't have a role for this person, but we really like them. How do we think about uh, bringing them into the firm?" And uh, you know, again, I've been here long enough to to remember when. That person maybe never would have even taken our call, let alone called us uh, to, to talk about a job. So it's been really fun. It's really cool.
0: Who typically hires you within the company? What are you all great at where they'd be smart to outsource some of these important projects to you?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because we work across a number of different industries. And I'd say the person who's closest to making the capital markets decision uh, at the firm is usually the the person that's going to hire us. So if you're at a, a private equity sponsor, it might be, you know, the head of their capital markets team. If you're at a company, it might be CFO or treasurer, depending on, you know size of company and experience. And the services we provide really ultimately come back to enabling our clients to fill in the gaps that they might have. So sometimes those gaps are knowledge. Might be somebody who hasn't done a cross-border M&A transaction before, and they are looking to bring somebody in who's been through that before to think through all of the FX implications uh, or integration challenges associated with it. It might be a large multinational that says, I have a big FX footprint, um, but I don't really have the technology or capability to to put in place that kind of program. Let me bring Chatham in and and have them leverage Chatham's technology to do that. Could be a real estate investor who's got thousands of properties and asset level financings uh, across the world, and is thinking I have to be ready to uh, be able to analyze my my exposures, my data, my bank exposures at a moment's notice because those are the types of questions that I'm getting from board and other investors, and so. Uh, tends to be really senior capital markets folks that engage us. uh, And and again, the work is really, if it's related to debt or derivatives, sometimes it's filling in knowledge gaps. Oftentimes, it's taking advantage of our scale. We do so much that when banks are working with us, they recognize they're not just working with one client on behalf of Chatham. They actually recognize that we represent an entire industry and and thousands of clients uh, to to them.
0: It's a nice place to be. To get a little bit more granular and follow-up on that last question. What's the most interesting deal you've worked on and maybe an example of a complex kind of financial risk management
1: solution that you provided Thankfully, the listeners can't see the gray hair, but uh, but but they're coming in now. You know, I'll say some of the most interesting ones have tended to be, for me, at least working with companies in doing uh, M&A transactions. When they're particularly cross-border M&A in highly volatile interest rate or currency environments, so... You know, I won't divulge the names uh, for confidentiality, but always, you know, those that companies, that, whether it's sponsors or strategics that are looking to purchase uh, something, realizing there's currency risk, there's rate risk associated with financing, there's going to be integration challenges. Could there even be like commodity risk and Absolutely. Like
0: all, all of the above, like mashed into one, right?
1: Yes. And you're thinking about everything from capital structure to what does life look like, you know, on day one, on day 100, on day 1000. Those are the most fun because it's not just uh, about walking in the door and saying, hey, you should consider X, Y, and Z. Uh, One of the things we love and, and that really differentiates us is we're not kind of giving a memo and saying, hey, go do. um, We're actually with the team and acting as the arms and legs to help them execute the trades, whether it's negotiating the financing or working through the derivative side. I remember one particular transaction where we ended up having to talk to the central bank of the country in which the acquisition was happening because the acquisition was so large that it would move the currency markets. And they were worried about it. And so not your typical Tuesday afternoon, um, but uh, but was a pretty fun day uh, for, for me at least because I geek out on this stuff.
0: Yeah. I'm part of a consulting firm as well. And there's nothing more satisfying when you really feel like people rely on you. You're a partner. You're in the trenches with them. They never forget it, particularly if you deliver on your value proposition, right?
1: Yeah, that's right, and and I, I bet you you can relate to this. The the biggest compliment that uh, that we can get is thank you for giving me the confidence that we did the right thing. Right, I, I think that there, there's no bigger compliment uh, th- than that. And it's really uh, rewarding to hear that, uh, especially because it's a team effort. It, you know, it really. This is not a solo sport. I have this uh, pet theory that very few things in life are solo sports and business definitely isn't. And uh, I love when a client comes back to us and says, thanks for giving me that confidence because I know it was actually an entire team effort that made that possible. They'll come back again and again. Switching
0: gears a little bit, it feels like the world's going haywire. There's so much volatility, geopolitical, inflation, war in Europe. Interest rates, obviously, are a huge focus of issuers. What's your crystal ball saying about rates from here?
1: Yeah, it's a super interesting time. Uh, and and I wish I had a crystal ball that I could tell yep. you exactly what's going to happen. But, you know, I think there's a few interesting things to think about. One is um, this is an environment that most uh, capital markets professionals have not lived in before. Right. Right? I mean... Inflation like this, we haven't seen in generations. The rapid rate increases, hadn't seen in a long time. This is just a really challenging environment for capital markets professionals to make decisions and, and make recommendations. It's, it's a, new, a new environment. Two, there really continues to be, even after Powell spoke yesterday, a meaningful divergence between the words that come out of Powell's mouth and the mouths of the Fed and uh, and how the market is interpreting that. Now, time will tell who's going to end up being right. We, you know, we don't know, but to oversimplify, we hear Powell say, few rate cuts, and the market turns out into, oh, six rate cuts. And those are inconsistent with one another. Again, market could be right, Powell could be right, both of them could be wrong, who knows? But it presents an interesting inverted yield curve challenge for issuers, especially when they're thinking through the now or later question. You know, Do I wait? Do I not wait? What's available? But uh, this prospect of rate cuts is certainly unleashing, you know, today, as we said here in early February 24, is unleashing some elements of the market that I think had been dormant. So banks are coming back uh, into the term loan market. We're seeing, and I think you could probably speak to this even more, Tom, you know, resurgence of interest in, in IPOs, even if the, you know, calendar isn't quite full yet uh, on that. m is lots of processes are are happening, whether they're going to come to fruition or not. And everything feels like it's unlocking relative to 2023. They're loosening up.
0: Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Time will tell, you know, look, I've never seen anyone in the whole world who people try and quantify every word that comes out of his mouth. And sometimes you can't quantify things. You know, if you kind of feel like you're directionally right, that's a step in the right direction. And then from there, you know, it's like, Time has to go by, right? And you try and get some clarity from there. But you know, I, I think the moral of the story is companies need a team to have dialogue, uh, scenario planning, get in the war room. By the time you get that clarity, that's not when you want to act. You want to have your plan done well
1: ahead of time, correct? Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it's um, especially that emphasis on scenario planning, building a capital structure and a risk management plan that's resilient in the face of any market. I mean, the reality is companies can't wait for rates to come down. If an M&A transaction makes sense, if it makes sense at 5 percent but it doesn't make sense at 7 percent, that's a meaningful problem, right? You start to ask, you know, does that actually make sense? If a company needs to tap growth capital, an IPO, or, you know, enter into a private equity transaction, those are strategic decisions. Um, The implications around higher interest rates does have an impact on the tactics, but if it completely derails the strategy of the firm, I think that's a problem. And and that's where, I'd say, the best capital markets professionals make sure that they're running well ahead. They, They know what the strategy of the company is, and they're tying the capital market strategy and the risk management strategy back into the business strategy, such that, you know, you never have a situation where the CEO walks in the door and says, I'm interested in doing this deal. We need to raise this kind of money. And the treasurer says, I don't think we can do that right now. That is not a pleasant conversation for anybody. No, no, definitely not.
0: And I know you're kind of a tech forward advisory firm. When did the serious push on technology start? And what are you doing to leverage technology for the benefit of your clients?
1: Yeah, for us, I mean, technology started if you can believe it before I started. Um, we uh, realized in the late 90s that the internet was going to be a thing <laughs> and our first technology was, hey, you know what? Let's have a website where people can actually track all of their derivative positions. Super simple today, novel in, you know, 1999-2000 when we first started uh, rolling that out. But let's let's fast forward. You know, one of the industries in which we work is the commercial real estate industry, which is an industry that has been impacted meaningfully by interest rate increases. But a challenge that's a little bit unique to the uh, commercial real estate industry is a lot of companies will finance on an asset-to-asset uh, basis. So might not be, you know, big public REIT might, will do unsecured bond deals and, and things like that, but a lot of real estate operators will be financing asset-to-asset deals, and that can be really hard to track. So we have a debt management platform, which has nearly $2 trillion of commercial real estate debt uh, on it. I think of all the data that's embedded in there, all the loan agreements, all the covenants, um, all the knowledge. uh, and for an individual client, uh, what it allows them to do and what it allows us to do as their advisor is actually see all of their debts, all of their derivatives uh, together, You know, put that together with the current market environment, what's available from a financing or refinancing perspective or what's not available, uh, and really be a partner as they are navigating what should we do. And as companies take more in the CRE space especially, take more of a portfolio view rather than an asset-by-asset view, the ability to have all that data at their fingertips, at our fingertips as their partner and advisor really changes the nature of the conversation and allows them to pursue strategies that, you know, would be much harder to execute if you didn't have all that data at your fingertips. You know, public companies, for another example, are multinationals. The number one topic that CFOs don't want to talk about on an earnings call uh, is FX, Right. It's complicated. Analysts really don't want to spend a lot of time uh, understanding it. They don't get it. And they don't want to spend time on it, which means if you're doing a great job as a multinational and a risk manager... You need to make it a non-issue. So that requires getting your hands on what are your exposures, having a program that works, whether the dollar strong or weak. Honestly, it's a lot easier to talk about interest rates or commodity prices than it is FX uh, yeah. for, for most uh, CFOs. And so, you know, that type of technology allows companies to really figure out what their exposures are, put in place great programs. And that and has an impact on everything from capital structure to M&A strategies to, you know, if you're doing divestitures, uh, you know, having that data uh, is really powerful. Yep. No
0: question about it. And I would imagine that's how you uh, sift through and stay updated on the latest market trends and developments, also with the uh, benefit of the technology you have, Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we probably are in a similar enough business to, to know that uh, there's no better way to learn than from your clients. To me, the probably the most impactful part of every day is you know sitting down with our clients and you know, learning about their industry, learning about what they're uh, investing in, what their challenges are, and using that to help drive some s- innovative solutions for them. So um, lo- love the data, but there's no replacement for that, that face-to-face conversation.
0: Shatham Financial has a spectacular track record of organic growth, but they've also done some acquisitions. Most recently, they acquired EA Markets. I wanted to know more about that partnership and how Amal sees it changing the business going forward.
1: We... Uh, For a while, we're looking to expand our capabilities in uh, the capital markets uh, area to bring on more experts uh, who have debt and and other uh, broader capital markets expertise. And uh, as we had embarked on that journey, we talked to lots of folks, and we found our kindred spirit in in Ruben Daniels, who's the founder of of EA uh, and the EA team, Uh, somebody who is uh, client-first, not solution-first, or Product first. There's lots of folks out there that are specialists in their particular area of, of finance. They might be high yield folks, or Lev fin, or you know, they do investment grade. We were really looking for somebody with experience that we could bring into conversations with private equity sponsors, with uh, public companies to talk more broadly about their capital markets, uh, needs and and challenges. So that's what we were looking for. And we uh, were excited to bring the EA team into the fold late in 2023. Uh, And while it's early, you know, I'd say one of the big ways that it's uh, positively impacting our client relationships, Tom, is that we are having more of those strategic conversations uh, with our clients. You really can't talk about derivatives and risk management without talking capital structure and the ability to have that broader conversation uh, with CFOs, with treasurers, with boards uh, is already starting to happen just even in the first few months of our working together. It's great.
0: I know that you just issued a new report, The State
1: of Financial Risk Management. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, as companies are growing uh, and taking on capital and going internationally, more companies have interest rate risk, currency risk, and commodity risk than ever before. You know, it's not a surprising statement. What is surprising is that a fewer percentage of them are hedging that risk than uh, than have before it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I I think there's a few reasons for it. Um, One uh, is, you know, particularly over the last several years, uh, put 2023 to the side, um, and you know this really well, Tom, that, you know, we had a banner uh, run on IPO markets for a little while there. Lots of companies went public, whether they were VC-backed or private equity-backed those companies tend to be less mature in in their risk management uh, approaches. While they're more levered in in some cases, they tend to spend a little bit less time and energy on interest rate risk management, a lot less time and energy on FX and commodity risk management, uh, because they require investment. Um, It requires real investment to, to do those well. So that is actually one of the reasons that we saw the numbers drop in terms of percentage that are really hedging their exposures, because more companies have gone public that are less mature
0: and probably, le- I mean, to be honest, right, like less sophisticated. Maybe they were prematurely brought out to the public markets before having the infrastructure. That's the way it is sometimes. And people have to adjust and, and refine their approach, right?
1: That's right. And then they'll they'll catch up. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, because when, when you're in the public markets, the, those questions get out. Like, even though analysts don't want to talk about FX, you'll get the question. So I think that, that's one of the reasons. Um, the, the other reason is that... It, It is getting harder to know what to do because the market is so uh, volatile. Yep. One of the most common questions we got last year is, ah, should I really hedge interest rates now if they're going to go down later? Yeah. Right. And same thing with FX, Uh, you know, depending on what direction you're at, strong dollar or weak dollars is better for, you know, some companies versus others. it's that age old question of, ah, do I really want to hedge the euro if it's at 110, if I think it's going to go to 102 and, you know, That's not the appropriate question. The the appropriate question is, you know, how are we managing the risk and what amount of risk makes sense for our organization to take on? Not what is the absolute level of rates or absolute level of, you know, the dollar. Yeah, and it's hard to be a market timer
0: on all this stuff. What will successful public companies do to kind of adapt if we are in this higher for longer, just kind of in a steady climb uphill? How how are the most successful companies going to handle that?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with uh, it starts a little bit with just uh, looking at your capital structure and and being creative about it. Uh, I mean, if you're you know solidly investment grade, um, higher for longer is unpleasant, but probably not uh, that dramatic of, of an impact um, for those that are. Call it uh, cuspy or hybrid credit or or you know high yield uh, credit, it has a more material impact just because of the leverage, and you start to have conversations around well, what is the best tool uh, that, that's available in in our toolkit for uh, for this capital structure? Are there alternative ways for us to to structure this? And then. From a risk management standpoint, how much risk can we take? What's our ability to pass through some of our, you know, cost increases on inflation? Is there some way for us to, to, you know, hedge that risk or, or not, or do we just have to bear it? Uh, but, but again, I think it really starts with saying, you know, let's get creative on on capital structure. And you know, just the other day, I had a conversation with a company that's I would say kind of crossover credit, and the treasurer said, I i am hearing a lot about private capital. I don't know if it's for me or not, but I think it's my job to figure out uh, if it can make sense for uh, our firm because I know we're going to be acquisitive, we're going to need to do X, Y, and Z, and that's somebody who's really looking forward and not just looking to the old playbook, but looking at a new playbook. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit
0: about 2024. It's always fun
1: to sit here
0: in the beginning of the year and kind of talk about different things. So I'm going to give you a few areas of the market and uh, want to get your kind of quick reaction to it. What do you think about M&A and that bouncing back in 24? And what are the top three things that, you know, potential clients of yours need to have in mind that they might not be thinking about?
1: Yeah, I'd say domestic or cross-border. I'd say acquisition capacity, funding capability, how are you going to do it? Be ready before the day that uh, I mentioned earlier that the CEO walks in the room and says, I need a billion dollars. I got this company we're, we're going to buy or whatever it is, you know, scale it to, to your organization. I, I would almost call that one, two, and three in terms of yeah, priority, Tom. For I mean, sure. that, that, you know, for CFOs, for treasurers, you know, just... If that's part of the strategy, you have to be ready for it. You can find financing if you're in a pinch, but that might not be the best structure and that might not be the best deal available. And so being ahead of it. And so it often feels like a lot of preparatory work, but it will pay off in the end. So I'd say that's the number one priority. On the cross-border side, I'd say that the biggest challenge tends to be sign-to-close risk uh, and how you think about the currency uh, risk inherent yeah. in a cross-border transaction, both pre-closing and then post-closing for integration. And that's harder to have a playbook for if you haven't done it before, but we're happy to give folks some some advice on you know, how to think through that kind of a, a playbook for uh, for cross-border transactions, just because they're, they're you know, uh, I'd say the CFO or the treasury team might not always be in the room with the MA team as they're negotiating the deal. And there are things that you can do early uh, to actually make everyone's life better, seller and buyer. But often that's not the number one focus, uh, rightfully so, of the MA team. Yeah.
0: Another big thing in 2024, it's an election year. I don't know if you uh, have uh, heard of that, but um, <laughs> it's going to probably get ugly and volatile and, and whatever. But let alone the U.S. election, I think there's 75 elections happening around the world. What are you talking to clients about here in February, knowing that elections are going to happen all over
1: the world throughout the year? Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing, actually. I think about half the world's population will elect new leaders uh, this year or, or new parliaments uh, or you know, Congress or whatever the representative body is. I mean, that is really tremendous. And, and think about how far the world has come in, you know, two centuries uh, relative yeah. to where we were. So that's amazing, but I'm going to couple that with a maybe a more disturbing and sobering fact, which was 2023 um, saw the most armed conflicts in the world over the last three decades. Really? Um, yeah. So when we combine half the world's population going to the polls, the concept of populism, regardless of your opinion on it, and yep. a unfortunately, record amounts of of armed conflict, I think it's really hard to predict anything other than instability. So again, back to capital planning and FX risk, markets that you maybe could count on being available to you might not be available. Economies that you thought would go as, you know, well as uh, they have been might not be quite that. I mean, we're like to see, or, or certainly more likely to even see Japan increasing interest rates? I mean, that, that is, I think, I think most of us had written that off.
0: I didn't have gray hair when that happened the last
1: time. <laughs> I know, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, China and the U.S. are arguably diverging uh, in terms of growth, but, you know, perhaps there's some decoupling happening. I mean, it's, I don't want to be dramatic in saying no, it's-, it's I know. mean, look, it's complicated, right? I mean, it's more complicated than it was five years ago. Absolutely. And then with friend-shoring or near-shoring, um, we've already seen our clients you know, change their uh, long-term plans on their exposures. I'll, I'll say, honestly, a lot more conversations about hedging Mexico uh, the last few years than I had 10 years ago. And so it, there's a lot there to be prepared for. And I think uh, the, the lesson from all of that is be nimble stay ahead uh, of the market. Be aware of all the different sources that are available to you. And don't wait until there's a fire to then try to go get the insurance. Don't wait until you're out of options.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I got one more for you. How about the U.S. dollar? I know it's been strong, you know, since 22, but obviously in a long decline. How should companies prepare for that? What are you talking about with clients?
1: Yeah, so it's super interesting, but partly because one of the benefits that companies have if they have running exposure is that you end up not getting hit by any one big impact uh, on a currency move, right? You know, t- yeah. tomorrow if we woke up and and you know heard the dollar, you know, strengthened or weakened by five percent for any given company, uh, unless you're doing large capex or M and A transaction, that's one day. The trend really matters. Uh, And and I think what it really comes back to is understanding where your exposures are. So this answer is a little bit different. One of the biggest challenges multinationals have is actually knowing what their exposures are. So you might think you're exposed in one direction. Uh, I've been in this situation many times. When we actually do the work to dig into the data, the number of times we've told people like, you thought you were actually long this currency, you're actually short this currency. Which is shocking, no one believes it. And then you dive into the data and they say, oh, That makes sense because there might be little things like people would code euro invoices as dollar invoices because it was easier for them in your ERP system. Right. Or you have supplier contracts that you pay in euro, but are really based on the, you know, uh, the exchange rate. So is it really a euro exposure or is it a dollar exposure? So when you really dive into the data and put it all together, I think that's really the critical first step for companies. And given that, you know, half of companies that have FX risk aren't hedging it, I'd say at least half of companies out there don't have a strong handle on on their currency exposures. Yeah. My last question, Amal, would
0: be where do you see Chatham in the next three to five years? Obviously, you have great scale, lots of clients, probably hiring a lot of people. What's your vision for the company in the next uh, few years?
1: Yeah, can I admit that, that I went to our holiday party and uh, I was wondering, uh, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm a little sheepish that I might not know everybody here anymore. But um, <laughs> yeah. I think we're never going to lose sight of our putting clients in, in the center of our universe. And so for me, as I look forward over the next three to five years, I expect us to continue to be even stronger partners uh, with our clients and working with them on their most challenging capital markets uh, issues. And whether that's solving that with technology and offering that to our clients or certainly services or some combination of those two. We're pretty agnostic uh, to to that um, because, you know, we've held this principle for as long as I've been uh, at the firm, which is over uh, 20 years, uh, which is that um, our success is completely correlated with our client's success. If we help our clients be successful, everything flows uh, from that. Our ability to to grow the firm, our ability to impact markets positively, it all starts with making a positive impact on our clients. And so that's what you're going to see us doubling down on going forward and back to the excellence point, being the best in the world at what we do. Uh, We we don't take it lightly, um, the trust that our clients place in us uh, and the expectation they have in us. We we don't want to be arrogant about it, but uh, but we really are the the best in the world at at what we do. And we want to stay that way. And that doesn't happen by just doing the same thing over and over again. That happens by really being committed to it and having a team uh, that cares deeply about our clients and about one another.
0: time of unprecedented volatility, Chatham is perfectly positioned. They're adding tremendous value to companies around the world, helping to mitigate their risk and achieve their goals. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast, and in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank him all for joining me today. He has such a unique insight into the market, the challenges for companies, and the best ways to prepare. It was great to have him on. I'd love to have him back sometime down the road to check in. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena.